Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Well, good morning, and we are continuing to talk about the wins lately uh, from the Supreme Court. If you missed yesterday's show, we talked about uh, the 303 creative case and uh, affirmative action and some of those wins from the Supreme Court, as well as uh, the Fifth Circuit now that is uh, looking at the uh, injunctive relief that was actually granted by a federal judge uh, against the Biden administration and telling them, yeah, sorry, you can't actually censor conservatives for political discourse uh, just because you deem them to uh, have opinions that you don't like and call it misinformation. So in keeping with the wins, we're going to start out this morning uh, talking to Senator Joey Fillingain from the Mississippi State Legislature and the Uh, The one year anniversary of what is, I think, the greatest generational win so far of my lifetime, certainly, which is the U.S. Supreme Court voting to strike down Roe versus Wade. And uh, Senator Fillingain authored a bill which passed in 2007 that was a trigger law, essentially, uh, to take effect following the Supreme Court ruling on abortion. So, Senator, thanks so much for joining me today. So we are a year uh, past uh, Roe and Dobbs. And uh, what has happened to this law that was passed in 2007? And how is that currently affecting the state of Mississippi? Well, thank you so much for having me on, Jenna. And it's an honor to be on your program um, we are celebrating uh, the year post-Dobbs, and I can tell you in Mississippi, we are abortion clinic-free at this moment, and we're so thankful for that. Um, way back in 2007, when people called me crazy for trying to pass a bill um, that said that abortion would become illegal in the state, except in extremely rare circumstances of rape or to save the life of the mother, um, you know, 15 years prior to Dobbs ever being decided, uh, people thought we were a little nuts, probably. But, you know, the Lord laid it on my heart to go ahead and get a law on the books in the state of Mississippi um, that would be reflective of the constituency that I represented and the state as a whole, really. To be honest with you here in Mississippi, we're extremely conservative, as you know. And it just said, quite simply, if the Supreme Court ever had the good sense to overturn Roe versus Wade, and the decision went back to the 50 states, then in that instance, Mississippi would become abortion-free, essentially. And that's what happened. Um, As soon as Dobbs was handed down, I think there was a 10-day ratification sort of period where our state attorney general's office had to uh, read the opinion and make sure that it said what it said. And, of course, she did that, and immediately the um, abortion clinic, the only abortion clinic, which was located in Jackson in the state of Mississippi, um, gave notice that they would be shutting down and moving their operations to, I believe, New Mexico. So we're very thankful for the state of Mississippi and for this law that we call the trigger law because it triggered the um, abortions being outlawed in the state of Mississippi. This is just incredible, Senator, and I am so grateful that you had 
the courage and the foresight to say, well, what if, you know, because I think back in 2007 and even, you know, back in, uh, you know, 20. 22, you know, right before June. And when this opinion was handed down, everybody was saying, especially the Democrats, oh, this is settled law. And then, you know, Planned Parenthood versus Casey came along. We had the opportunity uh, years ago. This is never going to be overturned. And everybody would have said, oh, you know, you're crazy. This is just something that uh, should never uh, be passed because what is it going to matter? Right. But this shows how we can, through the legislative process, contemplate that if and when a future Supreme Court comes to their senses and actually follows the U.S. Constitution and the law, then we can already have these steps and mechanisms in place. Because if this had taken um, an entire legislative cycle to go through to pass a law in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, it would have taken a lot more than the 10-day certification period. So, um, so, So what what does that look like now or, or has that changed your view and, and some of your colleagues view about um, maybe having some other legislation like this in place in case the Supreme Court comes to their senses on, you know, perhaps other issues like, I don't know, maybe o- overturning Obergefell versus Hodges and, and and ensuring that the definition of marriage is what it always has been, one man and one woman or, you know, anything else legislatively. Absolutely. Well, it gives us lots of hope and encouragement, to be honest with you, that um, you can toll away in the field sometimes in these legislative committees and hearings, and you can get really down and frustrated thinking, this is not having any impact, this is never going to happen, you're just spinning your wheels. Um, and, of course, God has the long view and can see yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and we're very thankful that the Trump appointees largely put us over the the edge on the Roe decision being overturned. And as you say, I think it gives us hope that in many of these other instances where we had long thought that the Supreme Court is never going to come around, now they could. And I think you've seen just in this past month's hand-downs any number of decisions on affirmative action and religious liberties and freedoms I think our Supreme Court, at the very least, in its current composition, is willing to really honestly take a look at some of these long-held decisions that people have written off as final law to say, if it's not constitutional, if it doesn't pass constitutional muster, then they are willing to unsettle these so-called settled precedents. And I'm very thankful for that. Absolutely. I'm talking with Republican Senator Joey Fillengain out of Mississippi. Anna, what would be your encouragement then, Senator, to not only your fellow legislators, but also uh, to the people who are listening um, in Mississippi and states around the country to maybe encourage their state legislators to look at this more optimistically and kind of have a long-term sort of view to get some of this legislation in place that are trigger laws on other issues? Um, what what can they do to help perhaps pave the way for some of these other victories that uh, may very soon be forthcoming? Absolutely. Well, that's you're right on point, Jenna. Um, my encouragement, I've been in the legislature in Mississippi for a number of years, um, at 24 to be exact thus far, and I'm running for re-election. So I think if you take the long view, which certainly the liberals have done, Um, way better than we had in many instances over the course of time. 
if you go ahead and plant the seed, which is kind of what I looked at this law, the trigger law, as, we know that it may not be immediate, it may not happen overnight, but given time, if you lay the, the groundwork and the precedents in your state legislature and the state statutory scheme, these things can, in fact, pay off in the long run. So my encouragement to other fellow legislators across the country that may be listening to this, if you're in a state that does not have a trigger law, and there were several states that followed our lead and did have those that have now gone into effect, I think about half of the states now have either an outright ban or severe restrictions post-OBS. That leaves the other half of the states who have no restrictions, so there's lots of work yet to be done. But my encouragement would be don't give up, don't get discouraged, even if the hill ahead of you seems, you know, hard and insurmountable. It isn't. You know, with God, all things are possible, as we know. And if you allow the Lord to use you and your legislative capacity in your state to go ahead and get trigger laws on some of these types of issues in place, um, sometimes it's easier to get the trigger law passed than it would be waiting to after the decision is handed down because, you know, in our state, you know, back in 07, we knew the composition of the legislature was largely pro-life. And if we could get a trigger bill in front of them, they would have no choice but to vote for it or else their constituents would be highly upset with them. But they felt like it was an easy vote because they were thinking, well, this is never going to happen anyway, so why not go ahead and vote for it and get it on the books? They were depending on the Supreme Court not to change the precedent and the ruling. So sometimes, in some instances, you can get a trigger law put into place a lot easier than if you wait until after the decision is handed down because then it becomes reality, right? It's not just a theoretical exercise, but it's actual changing the law in present uh, real time. So my encouragement would be to go ahead and get some of these laws on your books in your particular state if you're of a mind to do so because it's easier in some instances and we see that it does bear fruit eventually. Yeah, that is really well said. And I think uh, such a great advice because you're absolutely right that uh, I, I think probably a lot of these these legislators thought, OK, you know, this is a way that I can tell my constituents I'm very pro-life. I signed this bill. It's really not going to matter. And it also wasn't as controversial. So they're not getting as much of the pushback and perhaps the lobbying from uh, the Democrats and some of these, you know, extreme, uh, you know, pro-death, pro-abortion uh, types of of lobbies and leftists uh, that they would in the aftermath now of the Dobbs decision. And so why not pass some of these things when um, it's easy and then continue to pray for the outcome like what we saw in Dobbs? And then you don't have any of that lag time, any of that conflict, any of that um, potential difficulty passing it in the aftermath of the opinion. And who knows how many, and I'm sure there are stats on this, uh, lives of, of children were saved because there was only that 10-day waiting period instead of longer for uh, this type of law to go through the legislature. And, and another thing that, um, Senator, uh, I, I also appreciate that you said is that, you know, the left uh, likes to play the long game. And I think that's totally true. And uh, one of the senior editors, uh, Daniel Horowitz, if, if you're familiar with him at The Blaze or listeners are, um, he always says that the left has a movement and the right has an industry. And I think that's a really good way to articulate how sometimes it feels like the left not only is playing the long game even more than 
uh, Republicans are and conservatives because we like to have giant wins, not just this incrementalism that we can't really see down the road. But also it seems like sometimes the left is actually more concerned about being world changers than we are. I mean, we have this apparatus and, you know, the RNC and the Republican Party and all of this stuff as kind of this industry and infrastructure. But are we really doing anything that matters in terms of change? And so that's why I so appreciate uh, members of state legislatures like you that have not only this type of foresight and this courage to put up legislation like this, Um, but are willing to do so and say, we're going to then continue to trust God uh, for the rest. And so you have also um, sponsored legislation and um, authored bills on uh, taking, for example, porn out of libraries um, and some other things. And so in just the last like three minutes that I have with you here, um, what are some other things that you're currently working on that AFR listeners, especially in Mississippi, can support? Well, again, thank you for the opportunity to be on your your program, and thanks for what you do, shining a light on these issues all across the country. It's just so important. Um, Some of the other things that we've been working on just this past year, as you mentioned, were um, bills like getting pornography out of our public schools, because in Mississippi, and I'm sure most other states uh, are similar, we provide in our public schools, you know, access online libraries for school children to do research papers and you know, reports and things of that nature. And the vendor we uh, have been using, we discovered, was not policing the access for even kindergartners, you know, very small, young, impressionable children in our public school system. You could type in a search, an innocent search, you know, looking about um, things like parties or something like that, and all sorts of sexual, gross, very pornographic-type information would come up in some instances. And so when we contacted the vendor, they were basically like, you know, it's a very subjective thing. You know, what we think is offensive, other people may not think is offensive. And they basically told us to hit the road or take a hike. So we passed a law this year that um, puts in place what our definitions of obscene and offensive material on those websites would be and stated that if you don't clean it up we have the right as a state to remove and cancel the contract and we'll go find another vendor who will so that was i thought very important um especially in our k-12 educational system and then also the transgender bill we have passed a law that i um presented on the the past um stated no person under the age of 18 and they and Senator Fillingain, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your work. And we have to, as Christians, be involved in our local state legislatures. We'll be back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Welcome back. And uh, we have been talking a lot about Ukraine and Russia and uh, what exactly is going on and why members of Congress, even the Republican Party as a whole, kind of seems like they're very much in favor of Ukraine and um, involving the United States, uh, especially largely financially. But now, even uh, a couple of Republican members of Congress, including uh, Lindsey Graham and, um, and others, and also a Senator Blumenthal. You know, so I mean, this is a, a bipartisan or maybe nonpartisan thing, um, but it seems to be a, un- a uniparty. Are now calling for Ukraine to join NATO. 
how would this actually affect our American posture? So joining me now is Dr. David Grantham, who is a leading expert in national security matters and international affairs. He currently serves as a senior fellow with the Center for a Secure Free Society in Washington, D.C., and has a great book called Consequences, An Intelligence Officer's War. So David, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I think that um, anyone who is uh, concerned at all about American interventionism in uh, the Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict and certainly doesn't want to see any more of our money um, and especially any more of our assets uh, going to Ukraine uh, to help what I think is just fighting a losing battle um, is very concerned with uh, Lindsey Graham's call for uh, Ukraine to join NATO, because that would have a lot more um, legal impacts in terms of binding a future Congress and a future presidency uh, on our involvement with Ukraine as well as other NATO members. So um, from your perspective, what what is going on with this first? And uh, what do you think about this idea? Well, I think the the facts here are important to to establish before jumping into the politics of it. And the the facts are first, if uh, shouldn't Ukraine join NATO, uh, it's a sort of a grandfather clause where now we're technically, if not officially, at war uh, with Russia. Um, moreover, the there's three categories within NATO in which money is spent, and one of those categories is to build up. Uh, capabilities. So immediately NATO would or uh, Ukraine would would be part of that. Um, I mean, it's already part of a funding mechanism right now, by and large, but it would officially be that and dollars would be committed to it. Um, so th- those th- those two facts alone um, are of concern when you consider the uh, admission of NATO. Now, with Lindsey Graham and, and Senator Blumenthal, both of them have asked for a roadmap to membership, which <clears throat> to me, that's just saying it's not no Ukraine, it's a slow yes. And, and I think that's, a, that's also problematic because you're merely uh, telegraphing your exact plans. Um, it gives Russia the ability to manipulate whatever the stipulations are to get Ukraine in and, and Ukraine as well. I mean, and let's, we have to keep in mind, Ukraine, this is... Uh, of interest to them. This is their, uh, this is Zelensky's primary concern uh, outside of, you know, saving his own country and his own people. And he's going to do whatever he can, and he should. Um, but we have to be very careful. He's going he's gonna to sell whatever angle he can sell um, to get on board in NATO. And, uh, and I would be doing the same thing if I was in his position. But we have to keep that in mind. Let's, let's not pretend like uh, he has... Um, just pure, pure motives and pure interests. He's doing what he has to do for his country, and we need to do the same for ours. Yeah, and, and I think that, that that absolutely makes sense. And to look at this uh, from an American perspective as 
only supporting what's genuinely in America's interest, I think is what's being lost here because there's sort of this ongoing presumption that the United States needs to be an ally to Ukraine in this ongoing conflict. And nobody, at least that I have seen that is involved on the congressional level, um, that is supporting this type of intervention and then NATO memberships has really articulated in any meaningful sense what exactly the U.S. interests are. So, I mean, what what is really the the thought process behind this. And then you even have uh, Biden, who just said as recently, um, you know, as Sunday of this week, that Ukraine is not yet ready to join NATO and calling the prospect of its membership in the International Alliance, uh, quote unquote, premature. Um, So there is some of this split. But what really, um, David, would, would you say is America's interest here or are there really any? Yeah, uh, well, I, you know, I wish I had a crystal ball to kind of uh, examine what exactly is going on in the heads of different people in D.C. Because um, uh, the fact is, the United States, at least in recent history, has a propensity for rushing into war and retreating, you know, at its leisure. And that is not um, a plan for victory. Moreover, we don't I'm not sure with Ukraine what the policy is. You know, I've I've been um, around a lot of smart people in my life, and I remember one who told me, he said, start with the end in mind. And I don't think that was the plan going into Ukraine. There isn't a sense of what is, what does winning uh, look like? What is our objective? I do think there is U.S. interests in supporting Ukraine, and but it's a very limited interest in my mind. And if Ukraine is willing to fight um, the uh, Putin empire, if you will, uh, they're more than welcome to do that. And we can support them. We've done it before, but I think it's limited in scope. And I think uh, um, we, could, we we I don't want to elaborate on all the things that would declare that to me in my mind would signal. Victory, but I do think there has to be keeping uh, start with the end in mind, where we say we will support you for uh, 24 months more with specific munitions or s- something, something that tells the American public. And I know that telegraphs to Russia that they could just wait it out, but there has to be some sort of plan that tells us uh, what victory looks like. Um, that way, we have a sense of where our interests start and stop in Ukraine. Yeah, and I think that that's totally reasonable. I'm speaking with uh, Dr. David Grantham, who's a leading expert in uh, national security matters and international affairs. And, you know, I think one of the the major problems um, with this whole narrative and support is that it seems like a lot of the members of Congress that were advocating for uh, this funding to Ukraine initially thought that this would be very temporary in duration. And because this is now has been ongoing and just has continued to build, nobody really thought at the outset to articulate and define what our interests are and what goals um, and those those goal posts that need to be set or uh, or what really winning or accomplishing American interests looks like. And then also on the flip side, uh, what would constitute saying, okay, we're now, you know, this is kind of the economic principle of sunken costs where 
we're just sending all of this, you know, money and munitions, and we're not actually advancing any goal that we have articulated. I mean, this is kind of a classic, you know, you start the project before you actually uh, map it out and you see, do we have all of the resources? Do we have an actual goal of what the final product looks like? And um, and there doesn't seem to be a consensus on Capitol Hill. And, and the problem that I see uh, just constitutionally as well with, um, with NATO membership uh, being extended or even this plan uh, for Ukraine is that, uh, uh, you know, for people who aren't familiar with this, under um, Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution, uh, Section 2 says that this Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. And the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state, to the contrary, notwithstanding. And so we tend to only think about um, the this, this supremacy nature of uh, the Constitution being the supreme law and none of the laws of the states notwithstanding. But this also applies to treaties. And so treaties can be used as a mechanism by not only other countries, but uh, by Congress or the executive to bind the United States and essentially unilaterally add to the duties and obligations um, of our supreme law and, and anything in the Constitution notwithstanding. And so, you know, what NATO and that treaty, the, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization is, you know, the acronym NATO, um, that military alliance does bind the United States, not just based on what the treaty itself would say and the obligations of security and so forth to its members, but also uh, binds the, the United States in a way that our Constitution actually provides for. And I don't think that our founders necessarily contemplated the way that treaties might be used um, or abused in this fashion. And so what um, David Grantham is really, you know, kind of a plan here for, or what has been floated at least by people like Lindsey Graham to suggest if we're going to have a pathway to NATO membership, um, what would that look like and have they contemplated the obligations then that the United States would have to Ukraine as a member? Well, I guess there's there's several ways to look at that. But before we even talk about what that pathway would look like, uh, let's consider some the philosophy that they're working from. Um, first and foremost, historically speaking, I mean, I'm a trained historian, and war throughout history, the War of 1812, the Civil War, I mean, you could just tick them off all World War One were often, if not always, approached without the appreciation for how long that war would actually be, what it would take, what it would cost. There is a uh, history of war where that is the case. So therefore, we have to expect whatever Congress, whatever government says it will be, it will be longer. It will be more costly. And therefore, the philosophy they're offering from, is, historically speaking, is already... Uh, flawed in my mind. Moreover, those costs are going to require uh, access to, I, I mean, there was a recent article that said that munitions are running low, uh, at least low for our standards, our stockpiles, because of what we're supplying to Ukraine. And during the, uh, not, during the global war on terror, which I was a part of and I have deployed, they were having to take ammo from police. Police didn't have access to ammo. Moreover, you have a bunch of different groups that won't fund the, the construction of new facilities to 
to build munitions and ammunition and such. So there is the cost benefit when you start from the philosophy of how we are often wrong about how long it's going to take and what it's going to cost, and you drill down to the pat the most recent past consequences of that, even if they had a plan for how it's going to work, there's a very good chance that it's not going to work out the way they say it is, and partly it's because they don't have a defined reason for or defined interests in Ukraine. And I think um, I know that's a very long-winded way of of not exactly addressing your question, but I, I wanted to kind of lay that foundation because until yeah. we have a sense of those questions being answered that identify specifically, these are the interests, this is why, um, because we keep in mind the interests in Ukraine uh, do exist. They just need to be articulated. And I would argue that one of the strategic interests is more of a global scale. Iran is already involved. Um, China is measuring Russia's success in Ukraine um, and not relying on it exclusively, but using it, I think, as part of their calculation in regards to Taiwan. So I think there is some larger global issues that are encapsulated in Ukraine. Um, and so I think there are interests there. But that's where I would start if I'm articulating the American public. It's much broader. Here's a few of the points of why I think um, we should be investing. But there are limits to investment, and here are those limits, and this is why. And that just that makes so much more sense than kind of what has seemed to be this um, court of public opinion, you know, kind of polling that people like Lindsey Graham are just going in off the cuff saying, oh, yeah, there should be, you know, a pathway maybe then, you know, almost like how this kind of reminds me in a way of how uh, the Republicans have been so ridiculous in trying to address, you know, any of the immigration solutions and how they deal with, you know, the DACA and the DREAM Act and, you know, people who um, were brought to the United States as as children. I mean, we we have to deal with that. And they say, oh, you know, a pathway to citizenship. And they, have, they don't take into consideration any of the broader issues, any of the big picture uh, consequences of some of this stuff. And it's just almost like this is a great soundbite on Hannity on Fox News. But when you get into the brass tacks with it, it doesn't really make sense. And I'm speaking with uh, David Grantham, yeah. who um, has authored a really great book, Consequences, An Intelligence Officer's War. And so in just the last like 30 seconds that I have with you, David, um, where should we go from here in terms of Ukraine and NATO membership? I don't think there should be <clears throat> discussions about NATO membership at this point. I think the discussions should be purely on um, what success looks like, um, what the Pentagon can say success looks like, and what the Biden administration can tell the American public. This is where I want to leave Ukraine, or this is where uh, we would consider success. And that could be territorial reacquisition. That could be a timeline. Um, but there needs to be some definitive measure of success, and NATO membership should not be part of that discussion. Well said. And, and I think that uh, Congress and also the Biden administration would do well to have experts like you actually advising them instead of, you know, probably the kids on Capitol Hill who are like, oh, this plays, you know, well in, in the court of public opinion and in a Politico piece or something like that. So uh, David Grantham, really appreciate that. You can find him at GranthamStrategies.com. It's G-R-A-N-T-H-A-M Strategies.com. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. 
Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back. And if you missed the last two segments, we've been talking about these kind of generational wins. Uh, first with uh, the aftermath of the Dobbs decision. We talked about 303 Creative and the First Amendment. Uh, uh, opinions from the U.S. Supreme Court, as well as uh, this now up-and-coming case we talked about yesterday uh, with the Biden administration out of um, Missouri and Louisiana filing uh, to stop the Biden administration from colluding with big tech to censor political viewpoints that the government doesn't agree with. And um, then in the last segment, if you missed this as well, um, we were talking about NATO and uh, this whole idea of some Republicans, including uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who, you know, I'm no real big fan of, honestly. Um, I think he kind of, you know, blows where the wind of political opinion takes him and whatever he thinks sounds good on a soundbite. Um, but he's now calling for this uh, potential roadmap to uh, introduce membership for Ukraine into NATO. And and I wanted to just expand a little bit on the constitutional analysis of that and, um, and, and kind of take this opportunity because we have been talking about uh, now Article 6 in the last segment and uh, talk about why this is so important that we understand our rule of law. Because I think a lot of people... Uh, don't really understand the weight and gravity of treaties to the United States. And this is something that uh, we really should be aware of as conservatives and Christians, what uh, Article 6 actually says. And so in uh, Section 2, it says, This Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, or which shall be made under authority of the United States, shall be supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. Most of us are familiar with the Supremacy Clause and to say that, okay, we have the supreme law of the land, which is the United States Constitution, and then the laws that are made in pursuance thereof, which of course would be uh, reflecting the subject matter that is actually given to the federal government uh, under the Constitution, because the founders were very concerned uh, during the Constitutional Convention in 1787 that the Articles of Confederation that they were tasked and uh, that they were representatives of their states with uh, modifying or creating um, a, a constitution and a mandate for government and a supreme law, the Articles of Confederation were too weak for the federal government. So they wanted to give the federal government specific powers for things that concerned our national security and things that would concern the entire union. Um, things like, for example, immigration. I mean, that shouldn't just be left up to the states. Can you imagine if there was a different way that people could immigrate through California and New York versus Texas and Florida? We would have everybody just going to California and New York, and that would impact Texas and Florida, right? And so we have to have some uniform rules on some things that affect everyone in the entire United States, and it has to have enough power to the federal government, but not so much power that we just live in a in a singular United States that the federal government dictates to the states everything and overrides state sovereignty, because we do have these now 50 different laboratories of democracy is, you know, the, the motto or the term um, 
is is coined uh, to say that. And really, you know, it's kind of a laboratory of a constitutional republic, uh, really. But we have state sovereignty and we have a lot of state sovereignty. And that has widely, widely been overlooked. Um, But one of the things that is given to the federal government is the ability to enter into treaties. And so, you know, from the grand scope, like the 30,000 foot perspective, this is why understanding what the U.S. Constitution says matters. And then how we can take one issue and news of the day topic like Ukraine uh, entering NATO, which, of course, is a treaty. And uh, and then we can talk about that in the context of the Constitution and how that actually impacts our individual freedoms and liberties that the Declaration says that the mandate for government in the United States obligates our government to preserve and protect those individual rights. So everything that we talk about in terms of news of the day needs to be understood first and foremost through a biblical worldview. And that means that that God has given us everything that we need to live rightly in every subject matter, whether we're talking about philosophy or healthcare or, you know, any of these other subject matters, uh, capitalism, you know, what's the best form of economics, any of these things, but certainly law and government. Uh, when we're talking about the family, when we're talking about the church, God has given us the the tools and the mandate in scripture how to understand this. And of course, we're all familiar with uh, Romans 13 that talks about the authority that God uh, gives and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And so the, uh, the institution of government is ordained by God, just like the institution of the family, the institution of the church, and it is ordained and established by God for our good. And that is when the institution is operating according to the authority that God himself has delegated to it. And so there, and so Romans 13 says that they say, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And I I think that there's a real misreading of Romans uh, a lot from from people who maybe think that you know the authorities in this context mean specifically the current people in power. Now, God, for His sovereign purposes, of course, does allow people to come into power or come into their public office here in the United States according to His will and His sovereignty, and we understand that, of course, from the full counsel of God. But what Romans thirteen is specifically talking about is the institutions, the authorities that God has ordained, the family, the church, and the civil government. And those authorities that exist uh, that have delegated uh, power from God are appointed by God. And so this is a matter of understanding the the scope of legitimate authority and staying within the proper authority structure that God has provided to us. And original sin, of course, in the garden was rebelling against the divine order of authority. Man wanted to become like God. And we cannot, as Christians, rebel against God's ordained and established institutions. We can't rebel in the context of the family by saying we can redefine marriage or by saying that children shouldn't obey their parents or by parents provoking their children to wrath and being petty, petty tyrants in their small 
a family unit any more than parents want to have a civil government that is tyrannical or has arbitrary laws or is unjust. Uh, This is the first unit of government that children are aware of is their parents. And that should, uh, the rules that are established in the home should reflect the character and nature of God, which is justice, predictability, certainty, morality, all of loving, um, gracious, mercy, all of these things that we would hope for of our civil government absolutely should be reflected, especially in the context of the family. And so the authorities that exist that are appointed by God are the institutions of government. And so when we're talking about these institutions of government, obviously uh, there is an overall scope of authority that it doesn't matter whether it's a constitutional republic, it's a king, it's a monarchy, or it's uh, it's more of a direct democracy like what Ireland, uh, you know, the, the Republic of Ireland currently has. Um, you know, when they voted uh, against, um, I think it was Proposition 8 to say, well, by just the majority whim of the people, now we're going to have abortion on demand. Well, that is, uh, no system of government is inherently better in terms of direct democracy, a king, a constitutional republic, in terms of the potential for it to be abused. If any system, whether it's king, democracy, anything in between, goes against the moral authority of God, it's being abusive of the authority that God himself has given to government. So our founders contemplated all of this and and read the Federalist Papers. It's just a wonderful example of when they talk about power contradicting power and the human condition and the predisposition to obtain more power and to centralize power into one branch or one person and um, men who are evil that are disposed to usurp that those limited powers and infringe on our rights. All of these things the founders contemplated, we need to separate powers. We need to limit that on the federal government. Then we also need to limit it actually in states as well and reserve the most power and decision-making authority to we the people. But that still means that the government as an institution is ordained by God for our good when the government is acting with legitimate authority in the context uh, of the civil government, we can go back to Romans 13. We can go to Proverbs that talks about when, uh, when the, there are wicked rulers, the people groan. But when there is righteous judgment and righteous leaders, the people rejoice. And we should also be praying for our leaders. The Bible commands us as Christians uh, in First uh, Timothy 2, it says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the civil government is not this uh, necessary evil to say, okay, we have to have some external force that is going to make sure that we don't go out and harm each other and that there are remedies and consequences and criminal penalties in some instances for the sin that we perpetuate on each other. It's true that there do need to be criminal laws and penalties and remedies, um, and we should be able to petition the government for redress of genuine grievances, but the government isn't just a necessary evil. 
It's an institution that God has ordained for our good. Just like the family isn't a necessary evil. We shouldn't we shouldn't want to get out of a family structure and be totally on our own. I mean, even me, I'm single right now, but I'm still part of my family in the sense that um, they are still my advisors. I still participate in um, the family structure. I am still accountable to them in my spiritual life. I'm part of a church family as well. I'm accountable uh, to my pastor and to, uh, to several pastors, actually. And so I have not just gotten out of the family unit model to say, man, this is so great. You know, as soon as I get to be 18, I want to get out on my own. I mean, that's, that is actually a secular perspective because God has ordained the family for our good. So he tells us in the full counsel of, of his word, how we as Christians can live within the established institutions that God has ordained. So it is incumbent upon us as Christians, not only to understand how to engage and participate holistically, not just in this buffet of picking and choosing issues. Imagine if we picked and and choose, and and some people are just picking and choosing what events and where they want to overlap with their immediate family. And I would say that's not living in the context of family. That's not being a good holistic member of your family or of your marriage or of, of parenting um, or of relationships. I mean, so many people, and I think this is part of why I am single, is that so many um, men approach relationships as compartmentalized and say, okay, you know, I have my my job, I have my life, and I have all of these little, you know, other activities around it. And relationship is just one of those other activities that sometimes I give some time to. Well, no, that's not how God has ordained the family structure. And that's also how, not how he has ordained an established church that it's not just on Sunday mornings for an hour and then you forget about church life the rest of the week. It's just one of those things that you do. That's also not how God has ordained the civil government and how the Christian is to live in light of civil government. We shouldn't be resisting uh, being active members and participating in family, church, and government. And so here in America... We have to learn what is our supreme law of the land. Do we like it? I mean, in the sense of does it comport with and is it consistent with the biblical worldview and God's design for our civil government? I would encourage families, um, look at your family structure. It Does it comport with and is it consistent with what the, what the Bible has said to parents, to husbands and wives, to people you know who are single like me in relationships? Are you dating for fun and frivolously? That's totally against what scripture commands. Uh, we should be actively seeking um, to be in marriages. Um, I know I am. And if anybody has any recommendations, <laughs> feel free, Jenna at AFR.net. Um, but uh, we should be actively wanting to participate in these institutions that are ordained by God. And so we need to consistently be learning, first of all, the doctrine of what the Bible teaches, and then how to live out our Christian life in all of these spheres and institutions that God has ordained. And so here, we're going to be talking about all three of those institutions, but especially the civil government. We need to know what does our supreme law of the land say with respect to treaties, with respect to Congress, the federal government, the state government. How do we live our Christian life in light of our government? How do we actively participate? What do we do as Christians? So we're going to continue to talk about this more Um, throughout this week and over the course of, um, you know, really just from this point, 
forward as well here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. And uh, this is why it's so much fun to be with you each and every morning. And we'll be back tomorrow right here on Jenna Ellis in the morning.